Jake. Well, it's a pleasure, and it'll be our last time in this studio. Yes, it is the last time. It's my last time in the studio, too. It seems a little bit bittersweet, but... Everyone, I'm sure, is excited for the fresh start in the new studio. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Asian Wave 101, that will be this week's show. I'm your host, Steve Zhang, for CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, live from the University of British Columbia on unceded Musqueam territory. Next week, I'll be broadcasting to you from our new space in the new sub on the campus. Thank you all for tuning in, and I'll see you all next time. Peace. Jay Park, so good to play us out. Feels good right here. Hey, everybody, clap your hand like this. Hey, uh, OMG, dream team, come on. Cha cha. I said, uh, oh, they go on it, they give me a. I think I'm also being a more warm tower. Oh, baby, I'm dying, I'm Crimes and Treasons Radio, this is Riff Raff. 
every Tuesday from 9 to 11 p.m. on 101.9 FM with Rally Rails and Jules Andre Brown. My name is Gennargi O'Sullivan of the Klawitsis Nation, originally from Turner Island. You're listening to a window exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. It's been a long time that I walked this way of life. I'm 65 years old. I'm also a survivor of the residential school for 10 years. I was taken away at 5 years old early in 50s I got five sisters and three brothers only three of us went to residential school each one of them my brother and sister had their own stories I have mine I went to residential school Fort Albany St. Anne School Fort George Quebec St. Joseph in those schools, there was no love, no hugging. Seven of my co-students in residence school commit suicide. Seven of them that I know. Just recently, my young friend, my chump, passed away just the other day. Many years that I walk here, I feel good being a Squaw Bells. Some people call me an elder. I told them, you call me that again, I'll beat you up. I'm proud who I am, and it's not bad. I just want to share that much. I cut it short, I usually talk two hours. But, uh, yeah, I'm I lived that life, I felt those pain. Regrets for listening. Oh, watch it. You have just heard a window exploring the legacy of Indian residential schools. Both my mother and I attended St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay, BC. This is a part of a larger project called Resonating Reconciliation that engages community radio as a tool to help define what reconciliation is. Resonating Reconciliation is meant to help reconcile all Canadians to this shared history. This is the work of the National Campus and Community Radio Association, the Red Jam Slam Society, and this station. Resonating Reconciliation is also supported by the Indian Residential School Survivor Society and is funded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. To hear more, go to www.ncra.ca slash resonating. Tune in.
in every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on CITR 101.9 FM, where we bring you the Community Living Show. A full hour is produced by the disabled community, showcasing for BC self-advocates, with lots of interesting and fun content, including some interviews from special guests with special needs. Join hosts Michael, Kelly, and friends every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. Because you've got a friend in community living and CITR. Good evening. It is Wednesday, July 24th, June, Wednesday, June 24th, and you're tuned into the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting to you live from unceded Musqueam territories out at UBC campus in beautiful Point Grey. Um, and we are here live in studio. My name is Jake Costello, and uh, joining us uh, behind the boards is uh, Jacob. Jacob. The other Jacob. <laughs> the other the other Jacob. I'm actually not a full Jacob. I'm strictly... Oh, you're one of those. I'm one of those. Oh, you're one of those Jacobs. <laughs> uh, so Jacob is joining us uh, as, a, as an arts reporter for a while, and this is your first time getting a handle on the boards? Yes, that is correct. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, you're doing great. Uh, today we have got a great show for you. We have a pair of tickets that we'll be giving away later in the program to Weaver Woman, an interdisciplinary dance performance that's coming up soon. Um, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to Seamus Farah over the phone, um, and he is the assistant director of a play by Moliere called The Imaginary Invalid. Also, Haley Ma reviewed an art show at Hot Art Wet City, and that is coming up pretty soon. And John Q, of course, will be here at the end of the show. Um, so stay tuned. Let's see if we can't get Seamus over the phone. And um, here's just a little bit of music for you.
The Imaginary Invalid is a three-act comedy ballet written by French playwright Molière in the 17... Oh, no, pardon me, the 1670s. It's even older than I thought. United Players is currently um, in the last week of their run at Jericho Arts Centre. The play is directed by Michael Farah, and we are joined over the phone by assistant director, as well as Michael Farah's son, Seamus Farah. Um, Seamus, welcome to the Arts Report. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, to join us. So tell us a little bit about The Imaginary Invalid. So The Imaginary Invalid is Moliere's final play that he wrote, and he starred as Argon in the original production. It's about a hypochondriac named Argon who wants to marry his daughter off to a doctor so that he can get his own medical care. And throughout the play, he gets st- he gets stopped by his meddlesome servant named Toinette, and by his dubious step, uh, second wife, Beline, and a bunch of other characters. It's a big French farce. Uh, uh, Yes, a huge farce, riotously funny, and, you know, very... um, I mean, it's it's similar time to, I guess, Shakespeare uh, a little bit later, so you get kind of big character dramas and situational comedies happening. Exactly. Um, In France, he's actually considered the French Shakespeare, so he's on par with the Master Bard. And a lot of his plays are originated from Commedia, Commedia dell'arte stock characters. So there's a big Italian influence in it, too. And it, so it's, like you said, just huge characters, hilarious situations, and a lot of um, problems that arise from the meddling of lower-class characters. Now, the play is in its final week. Um, the Imaginary Invalid is playing at um, at Jericho Arts Center. It closes June 28th. How has the run been received so far? It's been great. You know, it's a very long run, and we've had such a great um, outcome of patrons. We've had huge houses, and it's been so supportive. The responses have been great, and our actors are just doing a fantastic job. And I think we're all very sad that it's closing this Sunday. An- another point that I want to make is that you are um, you're the assistant director to this, uh, working on this play, and the director is your father, Michael Farah. Yes. Um, <laughs> what is that dynamic like? Well, it's a very interesting dynamic because our work never ends. We take it home with us because I live with my parents still. So we would be at the dinner table talking about Moliere, at the breakfast table talking about Moliere, you know, doing dishes, talking about Moliere. So it was a very all-encompassing process for us. And it's it's so great because my father and I complement each other really well, and we kind of balance each other out in our own crazy ways. And it's been such a pleasure to be able to work alongside him and learn so much and work alongside all of the actors and learn so much. And, yeah, it's, working with your family can often be a bit scary because... You can't escape them, but this process has just been fantastic, and I would definitely do it again. Have uh, Have there been um, maybe artistic disagreements that have carried home? And, and as you're talking about Moliere, you're also talking about these sort of artistic feuds that, that you can't escape? Has that happened? Oh, yeah, for sure. There, we had a big discussion in the very beginning of the process on what should be cut and what should be kept. Um, my father decided to place it in the fourth performance in the original production, and so he wanted to keep as much of the actual text and the kind of supplementary moments that are in the text, whereas I am one of the people who really likes to streamline the 
um, the plot. So that was a big artistic one. And then the final moment on stage was a big debate between my father and I. But uh, I won't give that away because I want people to go see it. And it's a pretty spectacular moment. Definitely. Now, um, you've worked with your family before. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my parents ran a show called Tony Tina's Wedding for 14 years. And when I was about 10 years old, I joined the cast as one of the characters. And then I also assistant stage manager that. I've been a, a stage manager for my parents, kind of one-person sh- one shows they do. And we're hoping to, when I graduate in 2017, do a little fringe tour as a family. A family fringe tour. That's right. So you're uh, currently working towards your Bachelor of Fine Arts of Theatre out at UBC, uh, if yes. I understand it. And I'm, I, I'm about to enter my second year of the program. And it sounds like with your family, you're getting a lot of hands-on experience. Oh, yeah. It's great because both my parents graduated from UBC, too. So I'll come home from class, and I'll talk to them about what I did, and they'll remember what they did and how it was the same, how it was different. And so I really am getting a full 360 experience at theater school. I, I can imagine that a lot of people uh, or, or some families might be entirely afraid of their children's choice to um, enter the world of the arts and, and performing arts. Um, how, how do you rebel um, artistically when you come from um, you know, such an arts-based family? Well, it's, it's really interesting because my parents both have a very concrete vision of what their craft is. And just through all the work I've done since I was eight starting in theater programs, my artistic and um, visual um, look is very different. And so although I'm following the same career, we're, we're going to have totally different, different paths because my parents started their own company, created their own own work, whereas I'm a big fan of joining a repertoire company, building that up, and then becoming an artistic director. Mm-hmm. So, and my parents both aren't the biggest Shakespeare fans, and Shakespeare is one of my biggest passions. So that's kind of the way I rebelled, was by sticking with the classics when they really love the modern works. That is, uh, that's really funny. I think a lot of people probably chase rock and roll for rebellion, but you're going all the way back to Shakespeare. I think. Oh, that's yeah. Really cool. No, no. The way, yeah, my, if I were to be a fanboy of anybody, it would be William Shakespeare for sure. <laughs> cool. And you're working on, uh, of course, the French Shakespeare. So um, the Imaginary Invalid is uh, at Jericho Arts Center until June 28th. And um, what can people expect from the performance? Pardon? What can Do people re- uh, expect? What can people expect? What can people expect? They can expect a lot of, hilarity, some gorgeous costumes, a beautiful set, and just really being invited into the world of 1673 France. Awesome. Well, Seamus Farah, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, and we'll be looking forward, we'll be keeping an eye out for um, Farah family fringe uh, performances in the future. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Weaver Woman is the latest production by Toma Arts. This er, multidisciplinary dance performance brings us the story of a woman, Mackie Yee, who speaks out her visions and thoughts while gazing out her window. All the while, choreographer Colleen Lanky dances and physically embodies these memories and dreams. The performance is based on a short story, um, called Chinyao, written by groundbreaking Korean author Oh Chong-wi. Uh, Weaver Woman is on at the Scotiabank Dance Center from July 3rd to the 5th, and we have got a pair of tickets to give away. So if you want a pair of tickets to this performance, send us an email at arts at citr.ca with the subject Weaver Woman uh, for a chance to win. And send that right away, because we have right now a interview brought to you by theater correspondent Christine Kim, who sat down with Mackie Yee, who's performing in the performance, uh, to talk a little bit about Weaver Woman. So this is that interview. My name is Christine Kim, and we are here today with Mackie Yee. Hello! Mackie, can you tell me a little bit about the Weaver Woman? Oh, Weaver Woman is uh, it's a creative piece that we work on uh, Korean short stories. So, and then, but it is, so we kind of did this translational performance through music, movement, and well, you know, the voice, quality of voice. Yes, yeah. and I hear <laughs> that there's live, um, there's original music um, in the piece. There's dance, yeah. there's theater. Um, so it's a very interdisciplinary piece. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's really multi-layered in terms of like, artistic disciplines. And uh, the, the culturally also very like, you know, multi-layered as well. So I think it's a really interesting piece. Uh, the title is Tia, so in translation, English translation of it as Weaver Woman. Yeah, the writer is Ozangi. Well, she's like one of these like a big landmark in like a Korean literature. He said because she is a, you know, a female writer, so she really created this like whole new genre of like you know Korean feminism literature. And I know I've seen Chinese theater before, and stylistically, it's quite different from how Western theater um, is performed. Uh-huh. And I was wondering. Are there aspects of traditional Korean theater in this performance, and how different is it stylistically from um, what Western audiences might be used to? It's really what's interesting is earlier I said it's really layers of different Different cultural layers, and then 
I know that you are working with the artistic director and choreographer for this, Colleen Lanky. Yeah. I was wondering, how was your experience working with her? So, yeah, the uh, process started. I think Colleen really had this uh, idea of, you know, when she, she found out this story and she learned about the story, she really wanted to, you know, make some art piece out of it. So I think she, she told me, like, you know, she had that idea actually for a really long time. But of course, the you know, timing wasn't really there, so she was working mm-hmm. on other things, and she's running her company, so you know, life gets busy. But then, uh, back there, 2012, I met her, and then after we doing the project, I got to know her through that different project. And then she was mentioning about this, because, you know, of course, me being Korean, so she was mentioning about, oh, actually, there is this uh, story, short story, the Korean short story, that mm-hmm. I'm really, like, you know, intrigued by it, and I like to really make something out of it. And then, so then she sent me the copy of it. From there on, we started to kind of have this discussion about it, and then she talked to like, the musician, and then she also talked to other dancer and actor, like from Toronto. So one by one, I could get on board, and then we kind of started a discussion about it. And then we finally got together in 2013 for the first workshop. So we were just kind of exploring, going with our impulse and going with our inspiration, going with whatever image that comes to our head. And we just really roughly put out everything there. We got back to, I think, that year, November again, for the very brief touch and touch basis thing. And then we come back 2014 as another form of like actually presenting at the Sanyasen Garden, as a part of the Sanyasen Garden summer concert. So then that time we had a chance to develop in another way. And at that time, actually, I had a chance to actually focus on text development. And with that, and then finally, then from then on, we'll just keep working actually towards the full production of it. So then finally, now we are in full rehearsal. You have a BFA in theater performance from the University of Regina and an MFA in interdisciplinary studies. So in your opinion, how integrated are all of the professions in the fine arts? Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, you know, I really didn't think about that much, and I did it because I think that actually, first of all, theater, like you know, being going on stage and then putting something on again, theater itself is already like you know quite really many genres, genre, like you know, like artistic discipline already like all there. Because you know, any like even like you know, the traditional theater, you still go there and then you see this visual set piece. And the lighting is for another part of a visual, and mm-hmm. also, you know, the, you know, the actors, the movement. So there is already kind of like a layers of, you know, artistic discipline already in theater. So I take theater as more like a kind of a multi-discipline work already to begin with. And when I'm doing the work, I guess so that's how I moved into Because first, I really, I was trained as really theater performance. But then I realized really, in terms of like when I started actually making my own work, I had to be more than flatter. And mm. I had, to, first of all, I'm creating all this piece. And then, you know, very often I produce my own work as well. So then when I make this one work, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I played really many different roles at the same time in theater making. And then also when I'm putting a piece on page, it's a, in a sense, it's natural for me because I am trained in Canada, so I have this Western, you know, the theater training here. But again, my background is really, you know, the Asian culture and then you know, specifically Korean culture, and also I have also some experience living in Japan as well. So then, those kind of things are gonna is a part of me. 
so if I'm making my work, if I'm playing some, you know, holiday victim play and then, you know, becoming that actor, you know, we're trying to become that character, that's a different story, but especially putting on my work, so then that comes, you know, sometimes it's a very culturally different way of move or even like a different way of, you know, perceiving things and then actually art. You do have such a interdisciplinary background. As you were working to be, I guess, the the woman in the Weaver Woman um, production, what are some of the new skills or new experiences that you have learned? Well, this piece, because it's such a kind of like a tight, like, you know, the creative process, we just have to really so close together and put out everything there. So to me, like, it's close and then, you know, witnessing, like, I really, really say it's witnessing really those great artists that I work with and then how, like, what they bring on the table. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just like, whoa, I never even looked into part of, you know, the, or this section in a story and then never felt that or never kind of think even. So so then there is this different discovery that I find through them that I myself would never discover. As a theater person, when I express that I use my voice and body and everything, the way I express it is totally different from Macaulay, who has really, you know, long uh, actor and experience plus this Japanese pleasure dancer. I am just so fortunate to work with this, you know, uh, artists who really work on totally different, like, you know, planets from me. As you were working on The Weaver Woman, and I was wondering... For you, after doing this production, do you see um, yourself integrating yourself more into Korean theater? I mean, like, I would be open to any, like, it doesn't matter any cultural background. If it's interesting enough with the project, I would love to work with. And again, like, you know, being in Canada and then, you know, starting all this, uh, you know, the theater career in Canada, actually, I don't have really much connection to Korean theater. Because when I, back, when I was in Korea, I never actually did any theater. Yeah. But it's interesting enough that I found the theater here and then trained, you know, kind of, you know, do those all the Western training. And then ever since then, I've been working in, you know, Canadian theater, you know, with other Canadians. So, and then now myself, I see myself more really, you know, where I would base it, that would be definitely Canada. Because I found Canada is really such a great place to explore all mm-hmm. those kind of, you know, cultural differences or, you know, not just cultural, but, you know, all these kind of layers of differences. Because in Canada, I think, you know, all people here are, you know, all from different walks of life. And then I really want to make, not just a simple, like, okay, this group talk about, you know, them, and then their group talk about them. But not like that. It's more like, okay, I bring this, and you bring this, and then can we make better out of this? And then I think eventually then that's where this really the Canadian, like, a collective identity emerges. And then in the big picture, then you will see this, oh, okay, this is the Canadian culture. And then that's why also when I started with the River Almost story, that's very interesting because I didn't know the story. I knew the writer, mm-hmm. but I didn't know the story. When I read it, and then again, it's like, a, you know, the, when the, the story was like written way back before, like written, you know, the right now writing. So the story at the time is quite past, but again, we rework on it. And then, okay, how we this make it a time and it way far, you know, there to make it really now and here for really totally different people. And so I think that I like really that aspect of it, like, you know, how we can transform and then, you know, evolve out of, you know, certain things that go 
So all things are possible, and then I like to explore that all different kinds of possibilities. In art in general, like in a, with making your like you know kind of profession in in art in general is you know not easy. I think that is tough, and then so you know there is no doubt about it. So I really think you just really have to love it, and then you have to be really persevere. You have to have the love, and then you have to have the perseverance. Because if you can't persevere, you know no matter how much you love it, if you don't have a perseverance, you know the love doesn't last. As we start to wrap up our interview, Mackie, um, could you give us, you know, a hook or a reasoning of why people should get out there to uh, Scotiabank Dance Center, July 3rd to 5th, tickets are $22 for the Weaver Woman. Yeah, I mean, I love this piece, but, you know, for people, I think, because, as I said, they're, you know, multi-layers. First of all, I think it's quite a different experience. Not many really places like this, you know, you would be fine. So, I mean, it's kind of, a, you know, it's for everyone that you can take away from, but also in, in all overall experience overall, you will see how those different things come together. Thank you so much, Maki, for taking the time out of your day to um, talk with me. We're All Pretty Bizarre is an art show inspired by the films of John Hughes. In 1985, John Hughes directed, um, well, it was a busy year. He directed Weird Science. He also directed The Breakfast Club, which this song is from, if you remember it. Um, And he wrote The National Lampoon's European Vacation, um, which may have lost for Best Picture that year. I can't remember. Um, other notable works include Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, Home Alone, and more, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, um, and, and more. Uh, and artists are paying tribute to John Hughes at Hot Art Wet City, which is on Main and 7th, in a show that closes this week on the 27th. Um, arts reporter Haley Ma went to go check out the show, and this is her review of... We're all pretty bizarre, an art show inspired by the films of John Hughes. I'm Haley Ma for Arts Report, and this is a review of We're All Pretty Bizarre. It's the John Hughes tribute art show at Hot Art Wet City Gallery. As I walk towards the micro-sized gallery, Hot Art Wet City on Main Street and East 6th Avenue, 
I was greeted by a chalkboard sitting outside of the gallery. It read, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. This is just one of many memorable movie quotes from the late writer-director John Hughes. In this case, the phrase comes from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Hughes' iconic movie that urged teens everywhere to disregard authority and boringness. In fact, that idea of eschewing mundane rules is one reflected by We're All Pretty Bizarre, the current exhibition at Hot Art Wet City. It's a collective art show honoring the movies of John Hughes in fresh, often hilarious ways that subvert the typical snobbery of art galleries. Walking through the compact space of Hot Art Wet City, I was pleasantly surprised at the variety of works that paid tribute to a wide range of John Hughes' movies. Right off the bat, I noticed that several of the pieces featured close-ups of John Candy's portly face. The star of planes, trains, and automobiles, as well as Uncle Buck, Candy's face was distorted, mashed up onto other people's bodies, and even rendered in 3D. As somebody whose obsession with pop culture is only rivaled by my passion for breakfast, I loved the piece that featured the five characters of The Breakfast Club drawn as actual breakfast food. There were also many tributes to Molly Ringwald, the Brat Pack teen movie queen who lent her girl-next-door charms to John Hughes' movies The Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, and Pretty in Pink. Also, awesomely, there were no fewer than four different embroideries of Molly Ringwald flipping her middle finger in character as Claire from The Breakfast Club. Mashups were also in abundance and kept things interesting. John Hughes' characters were combined with stars from his other movies, with the Virgin Mary, and with Andy Warhol-inspired pop art. This anything-goes approach to artwork in the show was pulled off with great comedic and artistic effect. Although Hot Art Wet City is a fairly tiny space, the work of over 40 artists manages to be featured, and we're all pretty bizarre. Months before the exhibition, the gallery issued an open call for artists to submit their own work inspired by Hughes' films, breaking down the hierarchy that exists between traditional art galleries and their visitors. Chris Benson, owner of Hot Art Wet City, em emphasized the idea of accessibility, saying that having a free admission, open-call collective art show helps to create an even playing field between the artists and the audience. He notes that everyone from kids to senior citizens are all able to see their artwork in a gallery thanks to open-call shows like this. For We're All Pretty Bizarre, there wasn't any selection process. Basically, anybody who submitted was able to be part of the show. Benson has been blogging and curating pop art shows under the name Hot Art Wet City for the last four years and has been operating the current mini-gallery on Main Street for about two years now. He calls all of the shots from approaching artists to creating shows and just running the gallery. Hot Art Wet City features new art shows every month, usually group shows with a few artists, as well as some special one-night-only art events. Larger-scale open-call art shows like We're All Pretty Bizarre are a lot more legwork, but they do bring strong online and community buzz, since there are so many artists being featured. So, why show paying tribute to John Hughes? Why now? Benson spoke about how he's seen similar pop culture tribute shows in small galleries along the West Coast in the United States, in cities like Portland, San Francisco, and L.A., being in a compact space in a prime location within the city, we're all pretty bizarre, fills a gap in the local Vancouver art community. Benson also pointed out that 2015 marks the 30th anniversary of Weird Science and The Breakfast Club, two of John Hughes's most beloved movies. Hughes also wrote National Lampoon's European Vacation in the same year. Even though those films came out in 1985, Benson argues that they're still great movies, and now they also offer a strong sense of nostalgia several decades after their release. Young people are still discovering and falling in love with John Hughes' movies. It's practically an adolescent rite of passage. Hughes wrote almost 50 movies, and they vary greatly in tone. 
from the slapstick holiday hijinks of Home Alone to the nuanced, low-key budding love of Some Kind of Wonderful. However, a common thread running through all of his films is a suburban setting and a focus on the outcasts that make his movies hit close to home today. His movies are all about finding your own identity, even if it means walking along the path less traveled. Higgs passed away in 2009 and was notoriously private. He even wrote some of his last films under a pen name. However, his movies, mostly geared towards kids and teenagers, dare to take young audiences just as seriously as older viewers, and they're beloved to each new generation of fans. Whether you first encounter John Hughes in the theater, at a friend's house, or on Netflix, all of his films still carry a strong emotional resonance. His movies showcase the loners and the outcasts, the people that we've all identified with at some point, and then they tell you that you belong. And that's something worth making art about. The John Hughes Tribute Art Show, We're All Pretty Bizarre, runs from June 4th to 27th at Hot Art Wet City Gallery. The gallery is open from Wednesdays to Saturdays from 12 to 5 p.m. and is located at 2206 Main Street on the corner of Main and East 6th Avenue. Admission is free. Forget about me. Uh, that was Haley Ma's um, report on We're All Pretty Bizarre, a show at Hot Art Wet City here until, um, until I think it's this Saturday, June 27th, is when they're going to close that and take that down. Now, also at Hot Art Wet City this Friday is a show, a comedy show called Vancouverite. And it's a comedy show about living in Vancouver, about immigrating to Vancouver, and people's experience dealing with Vancouverites and becoming a Vancouverite. So check that out and check out um, everything else at Hot Art Wet City going on on their website. Um, And we are joined in studio with John Q, host of Q It Up here at CITR. How's everyone doing? Fantastic. It's the uh, last episode of the Art Support in the old station. It's true. We're moving studios, and um, we, we're two days away from our wake of mm-hmm. this studio, and we will be having um, a wake and a parade and a party for the opening of our new studio. Um, of course, Jacob is, is on the boards here with us as well. Um, are, are you going to miss the studio? Of course. I've been here for, what is it now, about a month? And, you know, I've grown pretty attached to it. And it's mm-hmm. only been a month. I can only imagine what you guys are experiencing. Well, and the station has, um, I don't know if it's been in this building for 75 years, but it's, I mean. It's 42 years, I think. 42 years yeah. in this space, 75 or 76. I should know. I, I helped make, make the ad, right? So I should, I should have that <laughs> knowledge. But I helped build this space 42 <laughs> yeah. years. Well, really exciting. We're transitioning you, into a... A uh, new new studio, state of the art. We're going to be instead of a a boiling hot um, bricked in room mm-hmm. in the corner of the sub that no one goes to. We're going to be right in center in the new student nest, yeah. right under the pizza restaurant. I'm so <laughs> that's convenient. Yeah, a little disappointed they didn't get a different pizza restaurant, <laughs> but that's another story. Well. John, Anyhow, John, um, uh, tell us about your week in arts. I've, I've got a selection of things to talk about, and uh, 
I don't know if I can delve too deeply into any of these, but if you guys have, there's a chance that you might have seen these exhibits too and might be able to throw your two cents in. Like, have any of you seen the Jeffrey Farmer exhibit yet? Uh, you were telling me about it. I almost went actually mm. the other day, but I um, was downtown in the it's, soccer game it's, zone. Uh, it's, I highly recommend it. It's, it is very much fitting within that uh, contemporary art model of like a meta consciousness of the art gallery as like what farmer would describe as a phenomenological space to experience art like very specifically that the contours of the gallery and how it feeds you information how it feeds you art is part of the process in and of itself so like the the it's it's a survey uh, exhibition of jeffrey farmer and he's a vancouver-based artist i think maybe gulf islands i'm not quite sure but he graduated from emily carr hmm. uh and his work is it's a sur- so it's a survey of things he's done over the past two decades or so and his work is very collage oriented there's a lot of montage there's a lot of focus on mm, maybe two different strains that i recognized and if you know anyone does a bit of research they might be able to supersede my understanding of it but there is an understanding of well the first thing being collage and like Mm -hmm. the idea of montage so like the first thing you see when you get to the second floor although there is something of his on the first floor inspired by a dream he had i believe different clockwork uh ornaments and movement and very abstract so it's difficult to explain (laughs) so i'll just i'll just talk about the more material things once you get to the second floor you're greeted by shelves and these organizations of objects and you know, things leaning against one another in odd ways, ladder, ar- ladders arrayed amongst other objects. And it, it's an interesting collection. And it's, it's a sort of three-dimensional collage that you're experiencing, which kind of segues into the next part of the program, which is his actual collage work. And you've got mm-hmm. this, like, sort of... Uh, <laughs> this strange you know i inter i interviewed the electronic artist ramsey the other day and she talked about how like when she's making zodiacs when she's making uh she loves the idea of representing like statistics and mm-hmm. uh like histories and i'm using scare quotes here and all these things in like really ornamental mechanic ways like it is with the zodiac where it's like oh if you're born if in this period then you're a taurus if you're born in this period then you're a gemini and it's kind of like that with all these historical cutouts, like these hundreds and hundreds of cutouts from books, like any kind of book, you maybe some, some magazines, like history books, cutouts of like historical figures, like pharaohs and kings and queens and soldiers and sailors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And historical figures too, like Gandhi and uh, Winston Churchill. And the, the, they're, they're put up and it's like, there's a seeming visual coherence to it. Uh, maybe it's according to size, but then it, you know, that that first line, which seems to mount up like a chain of dominoes, kind of is like the the logic is very quickly shaken because then you get to the central structure, which is like has a lot of bridges out and a lot of ledges with their own kind of like really cool. collection of like possibly thematically connected motifs but not necessarily like it's not predetermined in that sense but it does give you cause to think uh and i i read earlier that that is sort of his inspiration for the title of the exhibit as a, as a survey uh how do i fit this ghost within my mouth uh, 
his experience. Actually, yeah, I'll, I'll pull the anecdote up right w- now. Where is the exhibit? It's at the Vancouver Art Gallery, sorry. Yeah. It's on the second floor of the Vancouver Art Gallery. Thought so, yeah. Which is also doing the Heaven and Hell exhibit right now. Which yes. I believe is Renaissance era painting. I um, think it's uh, all Italian art from the 15th to 20th century. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, his the example I read was his anecdote about the Library of Warburg. Uh, where during the 1920s, if you rented out a book, you you would get the book, but the librarian would also give you three or four books. That would be, <laughs> like, friends of the book that she rented out. Really? So you had to take them together. So the idea of chaining together motifs, like that idea of what he describes as, like, cosmological thinking, where he gives something a name, and then that sort of fiddles it with a kind of spirit as well. Uh, there's other stuff there. They're, like... Really, he, he, really cool. Yeah, he he took a typewriter around uh, with him for a brief period while he was a student, and he would type out messages to people and give them on the bus. People he saw on the bus and give them give the messages to them on the bus, and there are messages in there which he was never able to give away. Uh, there's large scale installation art, like there's a very abstract dark room installation which is based on the life of Frank Zappa. A lot of, again, movement of objects, a sort of inhabitation of spirits. I'm describing this in very abstruse and abstract language and not necessarily the most accurate language. Uh, But it is absolutely worth going to go see. It's a very definitely sold me on it. All right. I actually I'm sold too. Mm -hmm. what I like about your uh, what you bring to the arts report is that. your kind of um, monologues about all these uh, exhibits that you've seen kind of feel like art itself. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, if you want to hear more art, tune in to Cue It Up Wednesday's Street. No. Uh, Yeah. Thank thank you. Audio art. You Uh, could could, uh, always bring me, you could recite these mm -hmm. as as spoken word Mm -hmm. poetry. Now, I want to make sure that we we get through um, some of the events happening this week because there's a lot going on. Um, So, first of all, we do have a call for artists. CBC Vancouver Plaza at 700 Hamilton needs art, and it might need your art. The Vancouver Heritage Foundation and CBC, as well as JJ Bean Coffee, um, are partnering up to sponsor the installation of a giant piece of art on a 60-foot by 40-foot wall. Um, So, to find out a little bit more information and to make a proposal, check out VancouverHeritageFoundation.org. Also in arts news, um, today marks the launch of a new online database for Canadian queer films. Um, And MediaQueer.ca is a new project set to preserve and uh, make accessible LGBTQ Canadian films. And the site features works uh, from as early as the 1930s to today uh, and is accepting submissions. So the idea is that it's sort of an online Canadian database for for queer films. Um, And now we have a couple shows around town. Um, Tomorrow, the Burrard Arts Foundation at 108 East Broadway is uh, opens or marks the opening of Towards a Fictional History of Color. It's a group show by six Vancouver based artists that addresses um, or that address or innovate with color by pouring, soaking, covering, washing, um, inflating, and negating color. The works are paired with a semi-fictional rewriting of color history to explore color as a cultural symbol of economy, power, pleasure, memory, and science. 
there's a few other things. If you're in Burnaby, um, check out the Nikkei National Museum, um, where there's an exhibit of Japan's enduring folk art. And this includes over 100 works of folk art from Japan um, that have never before been shown in Canada. And that's on from now until October. Um, Saturday, June 27th, Cinematheque presents um, Motor Sister, a celebration of the works of Haida Paul. Um, Haida Paul was this respected filmmaker and editor who contributed to Vancouver's film community for over 50 years. Um, and she passed away last year. At 4 p.m., there's going to be a screening of short, four short films. And at 7 p.m., there is a compilation of some of her clips spanning her filmography, as well as a panel discussion with several of her colleagues and collaborators. Um, tomorrow also, um, or th- what day is the 26th? I think th- that must be Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be really cool. Nils Norman is speaking at Western Front. Uh, he's a London-based artist um, whose works touch on the disciplines of public art, architecture, and urban planning. And he draws inspiration from local politics, alternative economics, and ecosystems, as well as the act of play. Um, and he, um, his talk will focus on his ongoing research on adventure, uh, sorry, adventure playgrounds and the architecture of play. And just lastly, um, also on, or on June 27th, if you're south of the Fraser, Friends of the Grove in Newton, B.C. hosts um, Open Doors for Peace. It's a free, family-friendly event, um, and it's a concert. We're running from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. There will be music from a group called Music Therapists for Peace, as well as the Sacred Web Singers, among others. There will be free food. And check out the Newton Community Festival if you are in Surrey this Saturday. So um, those are just a few things that I wanted to make sure that we told the people about. If you didn't have plans, I think uh, Jake just give you ample opportunity to fill up your schedules. Uh, well, I hope so. John, I was thinking about you for the Nils Norman uh, speak, uh, his talk at Western Front. I don't know why. <laughs> it's been great to do the arts report. Thank you. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on at the, arts, uh, at the Western Front. I think uh, Gamelan Bike Bike just had a performance at Western Front. Maybe it was at Dude Chilling Park, but it was sponsored or in collaboration with the Western Front. And they're doing something else with them, I think, on the 7th of July. Uh, and for the Cinematheque uh, on July 8th, they're going to be having another dim cinema screening which I'm I'm so vaguely aware of them, but I think they're like a Vancouver-based organization which just curates new experimental film, and they have one screening at the Cinematheque per month. And their June 8th screening is with... Or sorry, July 8th, rather. Oh gosh, maybe it is June 8th. No, it couldn't be. It's upcoming. I, well, it's uh, upcoming. Anyhow, future. yeah, look up Dim Cinema. Uh, it's uh, and if it's a monthly event, then... it is a monthly event, and it's going to be Ute Arand next month, uh, a Dutch filmmaker, I believe, or no, sorry, a German filmmaker who does. <laughs> I'm sorry, my information is not coming up right now. Uh, I really enjoy the Cinematheque. I think it's a really nice space for. Um, What's their tagline? Essential cinema or, or something like that? Something like that. Essential cinema. 
Essential Cinema. Might be it. Yeah. <laughs> I that last year they did or well they do it every year now. I think it's twenty four hour film marathons that they mm-hmm. do. It's really cool. One thing about the Cinematech is the difference between a Cinematech and um a th- just some of the local theaters that we have around is the library of films that they have. And they've mm-hmm. got a huge library of um, from eight millimeter to, you know, digital. They've Blu-rays. also got educational initiatives like camps during the summer for younger people. Uh, yeah, there's a, it's a fantastic institution. And of course, if you're looking for things to do this weekend, um, we're having a party. Um, to our brand new station, which we will be broadcasting from next week this time. Very nice. Very nice. New state-of-the-art. New chapter. A new chapter. Speaking of new chapters... No, they're closing down all the chapters, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Indigo is is packing up. (laughs) Um, Black Bond forever. Um, (laughs) What? It is the end of this (laughs) chapter. It's the end of this show. Um, yeah. And until next week, until but the, it's the end of it from the 